Welcome to Objection. I'm Nadine Bloom. And I'm Kelly Doctor. We're lawyers at a firm called Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. This is episode three of Objection, a podcast miniseries where we explore injustices big and small and the ways that the law can be used to address them. In this episode, we want to talk about a small injustice that we solved, but in doing so, we realized that it was just a symptom of a much bigger problem. A problem without an easy solution. And the way to fix the problem may be to change the way we think about it entirely. Like a lot of parents, I had a hard time finding a childcare spot for my son. In some areas of Toronto, finding a spot at a childcare centre is super competitive. They say, and this is no exaggeration, as soon as you get a positive pregnancy test, you need to start looking for a spot. To increase my chances of getting in somewhere, I was advised to put my name on as many wait lists as possible. But some of these centres were charging a fee just to be placed on the wait list. At some places it was $20, but others were charging up to 150 bucks. I have a good job, and while $20 doesn't sound like a lot, it adds up when you're applying to dozens of places. But here's the real kicker. This fee didn't guarantee that I would get a spot, and it wasn't even refundable if my son didn't get in. In fact, paying the fee didn't even guarantee that my place in the line would be respected. So what exactly was I paying for? We decided we would try and change the law, not by launching a challenge in court, but by getting the government to pass a law to ban daycare waitlist fees. And we would record our efforts and turn them into a podcast. So we made an appointment with Nadine's MPP, Liberal Arthur Potts. Potts ushered us into his office with a firm handshake. If he wasn't a politician, he could totally make a living playing one on TV. Strong jaw, gleaming teeth, broad smile, you know the type. Here's our first ever recording on a voice recorder app we literally downloaded a few minutes before meeting with Potts. All right, hold up, before you say anything oh, interesting, I'm yeah, going to yeah, try to get it close to your face as well. We're still working on the technology <laughs> issues. This is very new to us. but uh. At the time, we pitched the issue as a consumer protection problem. Here's Kelly. I think what concerns us from a sort of consumer protection standpoint yeah. is that particularly the combination of these fees and also the non-transparency of these lists. It's not even like you're paying mm-hmm. to hold a spot in a way that's being managed in a fair and orderly manner. You're, you're, you're paying and then somebody can jump the queue. Potts agreed. This is a consumer protection issue, and maybe it's some area we need to either regulate or, or outlaw. Um, I think it's, it's actually reprehensible to hold parents uh, to ransom this way. I'd be very concerned about it. We thought at the time that framing this as a consumer protection issue was a creative spin on the problem. But later on, we realized that viewing childcare as a consumer product may be the very thing that stands in the way of a better childcare system. Anyway, Potts suggested we start a petition. He would then read it into the legislature, and that would get some attention on the issue. When I heard that suggestion, I have to admit, I rolled my eyes. I thought that reading a petition in the legislature would bring about as much attention as an MPP congratulating the local soccer team. But I was wrong. A reporter named Lori Monsabratton from the Toronto Star found out about our petition. And the next thing you know, we're on the cover of the Metro section of the Star. And then Nadine was interviewed by my CBC crush, Matt Galloway, on the City's Morning Show. Nadine, good morning. Good morning. Your son is two and is in childcare. How difficult was it to get him into childcare? It was difficult. Um, I would estimate that I... And by Global's Karen Lieberman, who featured us on the Evening News. ...many, given the scarcity of toddler spots in Toronto. So she and her colleague, both lawyers at a downtown firm, started a petition. Then something surprising happened. 
Rather than passing the buck or trying to justify the fees, politicians started falling over themselves to actually solve the problem. My MPP, Arthur Potts, told us he was going to sponsor a bill to ban these fees. Then another MPP, Peter Tabins, who's a member of the NDP, got in touch with us and told us that he was going to sponsor a bill to end these fees. Tabins had been fighting to ban waitlist fees for some time, but since he was in the opposition party, his efforts had been voted down. Then, during question period, Tabins took the issue to the Premier. Will the Premier immediately ensure that parents are no longer forced to pay fees just to get on a waitlist for their childcare? We're committed to eliminating the childcare uh, waitlist fees in Ontario, and uh, we'll work with providers to get that regulation uh, posted very soon, Mr. Speaker. Just like that, the Premier committed to ending waitlist fees. A few months later, the government amended the regulation under the Child Care and Early Years Act to ban waitlist fees at childcare centres. As lawyers, we sometimes go to court to strike down unjust laws. But this was the first time we were involved in an effort to pass a new law. And it was exciting, but it wasn't enough. I live in Toronto's East End, which is going through a baby boom. There's just not enough childcare spots in the area to meet the needs of local families. And then, if you're lucky enough to get a spot, it can cost more than $2,000 a month. Banning waitlist fees doesn't create more spaces, and it certainly doesn't make it more affordable. The reason I think we were so successful in banning waitlist fees is that the problem fit into the model of how many in Canada think about childcare. They view it just like any other service that consumers purchase in the marketplace, like dry cleaning or dog walking. The waitlist fees took unfair advantage of those consumers, so people could wrap their heads around trying to solve that problem. And better yet, it was a fix that didn't seem to cost them anything. But when parents and caregivers can't find affordable, quality childcare, the consequences are much greater than when people can't find a good hairdresser or a decent dog walker. Childcare scarcity raises serious issues of gender equality. Women are more likely to stay out of the workforce when parents can't get a spot which impacts on their career advancement and income. And it contributes to income inequality. Some people can't go back to school to improve their skills because they have to stay home with their kids. Without childcare, newcomer families can't take the English classes that they need to get a job. This is why advocates make the case that access to childcare is too crucial to treat like any other consumer good. They argue that it should be treated as a public service, like healthcare or the fire department. In Canada, we have public schools and municipal fire departments because Canadians feel that these things are too important to leave to the whims of the market. But critics of this view are quick to point out that people don't choose to get sick or experience a fire. People do, however, choose to have kids, and so, they argue, they should bear the economic consequences of their choices. Just listen to the comment thread from a Facebook petition for universal childcare, read by some of our colleagues who, just to be clear, do not share these views. Oh dear, why have kids at all? Kids deserve to be nourished, loved and cared for by their parents. Both parents do not and should not work, at least at the same time. This is what's wrong with modern society. Between child tax, schools, pediatricians, social assistance, etc., I feel I pay enough tax for other people's children as it is. Children are expensive, which is why I only had one. I don't understand why so many people feel entitled to have their children supported by the government. You decided to have children, so you take care of the children, okay? Meow. <laughs> I guess they're a cat person. We've been thinking about whether we could bring a court case arguing that by failing to provide universal child care, the government is violating equality rights under the Charter. But there are some challenges with this approach. Our legal system can be used to make sure that when the law provides benefits, 
the government ensures that those benefits are provided in a non-discriminatory manner, even if it means that the government has to spend more money. To give a real-life example from a case called Eldridge, the law already provides the benefits of basic medical services. But if you're deaf, you can't access the same quality of care as other people without sign language interpretation. Just think about it. How scary would it be to be in the middle of a procedure if your doctor or nurse can't explain what's going on? So in that case, the government was required to pay for sign language interpretation. But courts are far more reluctant to force governments to create totally new programs in order to improve social and economic equality. In a case called Autin, parents argue that the government should start funding a cutting-edge autism therapy for their kids. The court held that the government wasn't required to fund this treatment, even if it could make the lives of autistic children better. And this is the problem with the legal challenge to try to force the government to fund universal childcare. Like in Autin, we'd be trying to force the government to fund a benefit the law doesn't already provide. So this leaves us with trying to convince politicians to put in place universal childcare. Just a few short months ago, it seemed that political parties were finally coming to grips with this issue and that significant change might just be possible. You may recall, before we entered this 40 in hellscape, in the run-up to the 2018 Ontario provincial election, two of the three major parties, the Liberals and the NDP, made universal childcare a key election promise. This felt hugely significant for childcare advocates who had been working to garner this type of political will for decades. Alas, with the election of the progressive conservatives, dreams of the government willingly implementing universal childcare in Ontario have been dashed, at least for now. And with the PCs in power, these socially conservative voices, those yelling about parental choice and telling women they should choose to stay home with their kids, are only emboldened. So how can we change the conversation? In some countries, childcare is thought of in a very different way, which may explain why different public policy choices have been made. We spoke with Sarah Earhart, who is a childcare advocate and one of the founders of the advocacy group, the Toronto East Enders for Childcare. She lives in Toronto with her partner and her three-year-old son, Clarence. But at the time that she became pregnant, she was living in Sweden. I'd been working there with an intergovernmental organization and uh, Clarence's father lives here in Toronto. So we always knew we would reunite our family, uh, but we made the decision for me to continue with the pregnancy and with my employment in Stockholm. And a few months after the birth, we slowly made our way back to Canada and Toronto as our home base. Sarah's experience finding childcare in Sweden and finding childcare in Toronto was like night and day. My son was born on a Sunday morning and on Wednesday, I got a note from the state indicating my child's name, birth date, where our pediatrician and uh, health clinic was, and also when my child would qualify for childcare. A few months before you would need childcare, you inform the state that the childcare is required. They tell you to estimate a three to four month wait until you'll be told where there's a childcare center. And they try to offer you a spot as close to you as possible. And then your family can work around whether you want that spot or not. It's amazing. How much does it cost for parents? It's a sliding scale, and the maximum is roughly 1,200 Swedish crowns, which works out to between $200 and $300 Canadian a month. Sarah knew that she'd be coming back to Toronto. So when she was still in Sweden, she started putting her name on wait lists in Canada. I would say the first difference happened even when I was pregnant. And so in Sweden, I didn't have to get on any wait lists. Uh, the first point at which you start to discuss childcare is the birth of your child. However, I was encouraged by friends and family because I thought I'd be coming back to Canada at some point to get on lists. 
And then once I got back, I started making phone calls. I did the site visits. It became a daily task in my life for around eight months. And I ultimately took several additional months off before we managed to find a toddler spot for my son. Sarah explained several other differences between the Swedish system and the Canadian one, a key one being centralized planning. They have a way of connecting the fact that you're pregnant through your tax number to planning around childcare and education needs in a catchment area and community. The lack of planning is a huge problem in my neighborhood. There's no planning to ensure that there are childcare services in place to meet the increased need, which has resulted in fierce competition for childcare spots. The need for planning often gets left out of the childcare debate in Canada. Tax rebates or subsidies mean very little if there aren't any available spaces near your home or work. But a fundamental difference underlying the Swedish system is this. Daycare is guaranteed for children beyond the age of 12 months or one year. Even if parents are unemployed, there's a, a minimum amount of uh, childcare that every child has the right to. In other words, childcare is a right for the child. Childcare advocates know that daycare isn't just about parking kids somewhere, anywhere, so that parents can go to school or work. Quality childcare means that kids have access to good nutrition, opportunities for developing language and cognitive skills, and staff trained in early childhood education. So providing quality childcare is a way to make sure that all kids have an equal start in life. The perspective was not that parents have the right to work. It was that children have the right to have access to adequate care because they can't choose their parents. So the state has an obligation as a result to ensure that adequate care is provided for a minimum amount of time for every child every week. There's a large body of research demonstrating that high-quality early learning opportunities for children can have a significant impact on a child's long-term social and academic success. Now, those opportunities may be provided by a child's parents, but some parents, through no fault of their own, may not have the time or ability to provide them. I can think of one newcomer couple who couldn't get childcare. The father arranged to work night shifts while his partner worked during the day so that a parent was always home with their daughter. But that parent was often trying to sleep or catch up on chores and was not providing the same kind of stimulation that the child could get in a quality daycare center. As a result, the child's language skills and other developmental measures were delayed. Sarah made it clear that the childcare system in Sweden isn't perfect, but it's a thoughtful, planned system that provides universal, affordable, and accessible care. And at the center of discussions and debates about that system is a consideration of the rights of the child. Hearing about Sweden made us wonder, could reframing the debate in Canada help get us beyond this notion of parental choice? We did some research to see if there was any legal basis in Canada to claim that children have a right to quality childcare. And there is, the International Convention on the Rights of the Child. So the Convention on the Rights of the Child provides a wide range of protections of children's rights. And of course, it is also a convention that Canada has signed and ratified. So it is binding on Canada. And by that, I mean that uh, if Canada is found to have violated the provisions of that convention, then that would amount to a violation of its international obligations. This is Lewis Century, a lawyer at Goldblatt Partners who brings a global perspective to the practice of law. He has relied on international treaties when advancing legal issues in Canadian courts. The convention actually requires states to uh, render appropriate assistance, and now I'm quoting from Article 18.2, appropriate assistance to parents and legal guardians in the performance of their child-rearing responsibilities, and also to ensure the development of institutions, 
facilities and services for the care of children. And then finally, if you move on to the next paragraph, it says that all state parties, including Canada, shall take all appropriate measures to ensure that children of working parents have the right to benefit from child care services and facilities for which they are eligible. We think there's a good argument that these provisions support a publicly funded, accessible child care system. But just because Canada has ratified an international convention, it doesn't mean those principles automatically become part of Canadian law. Canadians can't go to court and claim that their rights under the Convention, the rights of the child, have been violated and therefore they should be entitled to some sort of remedy. However, there are a number of creative ways that international conventions and treaties can be used in strategic advocacy. And one of them is that if a Canadian is claiming a rights violation under a Canadian law and goes to court, they may well be able to argue that the Convention on the Rights of the Child is relevant to that issue, and the court may be persuaded that the obligations or the rights in the, in the Convention that Canada has agreed to should be considered in interpreting what the right in Canada means. While we have not quite found the right case to argue this Convention in the courts, the Convention does have moral and rhetorical force. It can be used by advocates to say that Canada isn't living up to its international responsibilities when it refuses to implement an affordable, accessible, and quality childcare system. Ultimately, we may need to change public attitudes towards childcare if we want to see significant change. We need to be willing to bear at least some of the costs of childcare, not only to improve opportunities for parents and equality for women, but because it gives all kids an equal start in life. We'd like to thank Goldblatt Partners for their support of Objection. Special thanks to Martha Friendly of the Child Care Resource and Research Unit, who changed how we think about daycare. We'd also like to thank Jasmine Budak, a busy mom and journalist, for lending us her ear. Thanks to MPPs Arthur Potts and Peter Tabbins for taking on the issue of waitlist fees. Special thanks also goes out to Lori Montsabraton, Matt Galloway, and Karen Lieberman. Their work demonstrates the need to support quality local media. Finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Ali Gordon Marshall, our transcriptionists Katiata Kane and Yasha Asik, and the many people who have helped support us in the making of Objection, including Kaylin Lord and Vanessa Payne. Music credits for this episode from Jazz R, Chris Zabriskie, Scott Joplin, Lee Rosevere, and Dr. Turtle. See show notes for full details.